0: Okay, then we are going to talk about light sources. So we've talked a bit about uh, material, the interaction of light and matter. We haven't really looked at why lasers are a desirable light source for spectroscopy. So we'll do that starting today. The next couple lectures will be about lasers and light sources. Um, we'll look at different types of lasers, the operating principles. Um, and we'll try to understand enough that we can understand um, why some lasers are better suited to certain experiments than others, and what some of the constraints and parameters you have to, to control when you uh, operate a particular laser or when you're choosing a particular laser for an experiment. Okay, so um, we'll start by looking at what goes on in a laser, that is, looking at the gain of the atomic medium, or the maybe molecular medium, depending on the laser. Um, and we'll see sort of three different regimes, the two-level system, three-level system, and a four-level system. In a two-level system, we never get what we call a game. You can't have a laser in a system with only two levels. We can get what's called electromagnetically-induced transparency. So we'll introduce that as something that's kind of interesting. Um, Later on we'll see an application of that in lasers uh, for what we call passive q switching. Uh, And we'll talk about a couple, uh, really the two primary classifications of laser systems. We um, classify, I think, lasers as three-level or four-level. Sometimes we classify them as CW or pulsed. Those are really the main ways we classify a laser system. So we'll talk about the difference between a three- and a four-level system, and then look at how you build a laser around those. And there's sort of two things we mean by lasers. Um, there's what we call laser amplifiers and laser oscillators. And what you probably think of as a laser is a laser oscillator. But the term actually applies equally well to uh, power amplifier. Um, and then once we've described the material inside, um, the function of the, the, the device, we'll talk about the cavity, the optical cavity that goes around it that is responsible for selecting a frequency and um, controlling the frequency stability of the device, which turns out to be important when you're doing uh, measurements that critically depend on the frequency of illumination. Okay, so we're going to start with some sort of generic energy level diagram for a system. So I've drawn four levels. There could be as many levels as as we might imagine. Um, Four will be sufficient to describe everything that we want to talk about today. These might not necessarily be the four lowest energy levels, but they're just four random energy levels that I've collected. Um, And we know a few things about the population of the atomic or molecular material that has this... uh, this energy level spectrum. It's primarily going to be populated in the lowest state, the ground state. We know that from the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution of a material in thermal equilibrium. And as you go to higher energy states, the probability of finding an atom or a molecule in those excited states decreases exponentially. And that exponential decrease goes as the energy scales to the thermal energy, kt, So T is just the thermodynamic temperature of the material. E is the energy state. So you can take the ground level as zero energy. Each additional state has some energy above that. And a couple weeks ago, we derived an expression for the power that's absorbed when light is incident on a material that has a population in state one and a population in state two. And at the time we were considering uh, two-level atoms, so we are only considering two states. Um, but now we'll consider an atom that has any number of states. We'll make a couple assumptions. Uh, the first is that it's in thermodynamic equilibrium and the ground state is the most likely state to find any given atom or molecule in. And the second is that the light that we illuminate it with is uh, basically a single frequency, narrow band, such that if that light has a frequency associated with one of the energy level transitions, we can effectively consider only those two energy states and treat our system as a two-level system. Okay, So if our photon energy corresponds to this much energy such that it can excite from the ground state to this excited state, then we don't need to worry about what's going on in these upper states. Sending in light of that particular frequency will only cause transitions between these two states. Another way of saying that is our frequency is well outside of the, the line width of absorption for transitions to these higher states. Right, so you derived in the second homework, there was some Lorentzian line shape of absorbed power versus frequency. And there may be many lines that correspond to different energy transitions. So like uh, EJ to EI, EK, EI, E L to EI. And if we're dealing with light that has a frequency that's near one of those transitions, we can ignore the other. They won't be absorbed by these absorptions because it's too far off resonance. Okay, so then we can treat our system as essentially being a two-level system for the moment, and so the net power that's absorbed depends on the population of the upper state and the lower state, and then some of these parameters that we drive before: the cross section of the material, and the intensity that we drive this with. For now, I'm only interested in looking at this population difference. So the reason it's a population difference is the probability of, let's say we send in a photon that corresponds to this energy level difference between state EI and EJ. Um, If we can absorb a photon from the lower state, or absorb a photon and go from the lower state to the upper state, then the probability of that happening is proportional to the number of molecules in the lower state. And likewise, that same photon could stimulate a transition from the upper state to the lower state. The Probability of that happening is proportional to the number of molecules in the upper state. So the net absorption is proportional to the difference in those populations. And so we know, in thermal equilibrium, these higher energy states always have lower population. So N2 is less than N1. This is negative, so the net power delivered to the system, or I guess the net power um, that the system is written as emits, is negative, meaning it's absorbing. Okay, so that's typical materials: send light in, they absorb. Can a system be manipulated to produce gain instead of absorption? So what do we have to do to produce gain? just in terms of these parameters up here. We need N2 to be greater than N1. So we need somehow to get more atoms in an excited state than in a ground state. That's called pumping. Okay, So if we can do that, here's an example of an upper level state having a population that's greater than some lower-level state. It might not be greater than all lower-level states, but if we consider radiation has a frequency corresponding to this energy-level difference, then that radiation will see a net gain in this material rather than a net absorption. Okay, so this would act as an amplifier rather than an attenuator. it would still attenuate light that has a frequency corresponding to this energy level difference or this energy level difference. The question becomes, how could we prepare a material in this state? I said we'd pump it. Okay, yeah. Uh, Why e sub i to e sub k? Why not just like e sub j to e sub k? Well, let's see what happens if we we do that. Um, So Paul's right, but... First ask, what happens if we try to excite, I'm going to just use the term atoms, it could be molecules as well. Let's say we excite atoms that are in state J up to state K by pumping with photons that have the appropriate energy to make that transition. So at first we get absorption of those photons because N1 is greater than N2. And absorption means photons are being pumped up to this excited state. How long can we keep pumping them up? Until so they're equal. And that's what we have in this rightmost picture. Once they become equal, the amount of absorption equals the amount of gain, the amount of emission. And there's no net absorption or gain. We can never exceed the uh, that equilibrium condition in the upper state. If we did, then our photons that we're pumping it with would cause would be amplified and reduce the population of the upper state to reach that equilibrium. What's interesting, though, is what happens uh, if we're shining light on this of a particular frequency, such that we're pumping from state j to state k. Initially, what does the material do to that light? It absorbs it. Okay. so let's say it absorbs it to this point where the upper state has equal population as the lower state. Now what does it do to the light? Yeah, nothing. Uh, For every photon it absorbs, it's going to emit one. So the net effect is nothing. So this system is transparent. So we call this electromagnetically induced transparency. With a material that's opaque at a particular frequency, when it's illuminated with large enough intensity at that frequency, it becomes transparent. There's another, ner- another term for a material that does this, called a saturable absorber. And what ha- what's happening is we're getting absorption initially, and if you have low intensity light illuminating this, it will just get absorbed. And as we pump to the upper state, uh, that state will decay back to the ground state as long as we're not pumping it too hard, we can maintain this uh, this condition, this uh, upper state being less populated than the lower state. Remember, the atoms won't stay in this upper state forever. They'll eventually either decay and give off a photon, or they'll decay by colliding with their neighbors and lose their energy that way. So if they're decaying faster, they um, stay as an absorber. The only when we pump it hard enough that we can excite up to the state to reach this equilibrium condition before they have a chance to decay. So material where we can do that, we call a saturable absorber. At low intensity, it absorbs. At high intensity, the absorption, the absorption is the transition from state J to state K. At high intensity, that becomes saturated. The lower state becomes depleted. The upper state becomes populated. And there's no more excess population in state J to pump up. Hence, we call it saturated. So there's a material, chromium-doped yttrium aluminum garnet. Chromium-doped YAG what it's called. It's a common material used in lasers, which has this property. Will be desirable property for a material to have in a laser. But this is what we have when we only try to, when we can only manipulate between two states. We can never produce gain. The best we can do is transparency. So let's consider a case where we can uh, interact with three different states. So now we'll again start with. Uh, state J, and let's send in photons that excite this population of L. And let's ask not what happens to light at that frequency, but what happens to light at a different frequency that corresponds to the transition from state J to state K. Okay, so what's going to happen um, as we pump up the state L, The best we can do is to deplete state J, to populate state L until they have equal populations. State L will decay back down to the ground state, or to lower states, through spontaneous, induced, and uh, non radiative decay. So it can decay directly, it can lose some of the energy and go to a lower state, sort of cascade its way down. And so in the process, any upper level states get populated. We pump up to state L, some of that population decays to state K, and it can be possible then to fill up state K as I've shown over here, with a population that exceeds that of state J. So, state J and state L are shown with the same population. but state K can have an increased population. The the requirement for that to happen is you want fast decay from this top state to this intermediate state. So essentially everything you pump up to the top state, you want to fall right down into this state. And you want very slow decay from this state back down. And you can think of this a good analogy for this is like a water fountain, like a you know, An artistic fountain, that type. Of, it's not a, not a drinking fountain. You got your pool of water at the bottom. Right? You pump up to some pump at the top. Comes out a hole, and then if you have like a basin up at the top, this is your three-level system. Water at the bottom. It's pumped up. It doesn't stay in the top energy state very long. It very rapidly decays to the, bottom, to the intermediate state. You've got a very small reservoir there. You've got this bowl here that catches it. So it stays in that upper state. And you can imagine, you know, if... this bowl is sufficiently large, you can pump all the water out of this lower state and collect it in this upper bowl. Before it starts to spill over. Okay. You need to have a large bowl here. That's analogous to having a uh, long lifetime of this intermediate state. You need to have to not have a large bowl at the very top, collecting it. It's analogous to having a short lifetime of the upper state. Okay. And if you get out of an inversion, that's what's shown over here. So once we have that inversion, then we can ask what happens when we send in light that is a frequency difference corresponding to this transition with a population inversion. And so what happens is we get gain. We get a net gain. It's shown pictorially, one photon going in, a whole bunch coming out. And then the amount of gain we have so for every photon that decays, it has to get pumped back up. So the faster we're pumping photons up, the more we So that's the basic picture that goes into all of the laser gain calculations and formulas, which we're not going to uh, get too far into, but this picture is a useful picture to have. So this is called a three-level system, we're only dealing with three of the levels here. Um, you can also consider what's called a four-level system. And really a four-level system could be four or more levels. So now we'll consider all four levels. And what we're going to do is, well, let me go back. One of the problems of the three-level system, or one of the issues, is that um, the amount of gain you can have as photons or as uh, atoms decay down to this lower state by giving off a photon, you have to then pump them back up um, in order to maintain the inversion. And as you try to increase the pumping, eventually you'll completely deplete this lower state. So let's say you pump all the atoms up to state L. They quickly decay to state K. You've now got a large population inversion. You have some population up here and nothing down here. But you can't continue to pump it to produce more and more gain. So you can't do a laser based on this. That You can drive higher power by pumping it harder and harder. So that's where a four-level system becomes, becomes advantageous. So in a four-level system, your, ground, or your lowest state is generally the ground state, where there's the largest population. Think of it as having a, an infinite reservoir of atoms to pump. Those get pumped up into the excited state, or into this highest state. Um, from here, this looks just like a three-level system. This upper state decays quickly to this uh, intermediate state producing a large population in the intermediate state. And as long as that is a long lifetime, then those atoms will stay there long enough that there is more population here than there is down here. And once you have built up that population inversion, then you have gain. What you'd also like to have is rapid decay from this intermediate state back to the ground state and if you do that then when the system is pumped so the atoms are excited from the ground state to the upper state they quickly decay into this intermediate state that intermediate state gets highly populated you can send in light the frequency difference corresponding to level J and K here that gets amplified and causes transitions down to state J that's going to increase the population of state J, well it decreases the population of state K, and eventually that would eliminate your population inversion. But if the atoms in state J can rapidly decay to state to the ground state, then you can essentially keep this this level empty. So you always have a population inversion, and you don't saturate it as you increase the, the power going into this amplifier. So that's a four-level system. And we could have five, six, seven, any number of levels. Um, usually what we're concerned with is two levels between which there is a lazing, and then two different levels for the uh, reservoir from which you pump from and to which you pump to. And you might pump to more than one level. And all those levels might decay to the same place. Wade? So you're getting photons the Why is it not on Okay, we may or may not get photons from each of those transitions. And what I've tried to draw, and I didn't explain this, but these sort of squiggly lines I'm using to represent transitions that are due to absorption or emission of light. And then the straight lines are ones that may be non-radiative, due to like collisions, for instance. And so in this diagram right here. We absorb a photon. There's a collision of this with its neighbor that lowers its energy. And that energy just goes into heat, not as a photon. So it doesn't give off light. Um, and then the output is radiative. And then I've drawn the decay back to the ground state as being non-radiated. Now, you could have radiative decay from here to here, and from there to there. And that would cause the system to basically glow light emitted in all directions. It would be at frequencies other than the one that we're considering the laser wavelength. It would be at wavelengths where there is no population inversion. These are normal thermodynamic populations. So you wouldn't have anything special happening as a faint glow coming from the material. But you wouldn't get amplification of that light. So, compared to the three-level system, can you think of an advantage of the four-level system? I mean, I already mentioned it. Can anyone repeat back to me what one of the advantages of the four-level system is? So, yeah, potentially it increases the power level you can you can you can achieve if you continue to pump harder. So, so it doesn't saturate easily. So you remove it a limit to the power of cosmic vector. Whether or not that's relevant depends on how hard, hard you intend to pump it. Um, what about a disadvantage? Is there anything that you can see in this diagram that might suggest there's a disadvantage to a four-level system compared to a three-level system? Yeah. So here, if we look at the pump photons, their energy corresponds to a smaller value than in a four-level system, where we have to... We have an extra energy level, and additional energy in the pump, which we don't recover in the output. So it's less overall efficiency. Okay, so the three-level system is less efficient, I'm sorry, the four-level system is less efficient, but doesn't saturate. So at low power, the three-level system is more efficient, the four-level system is more efficient. That's what's stated here. Okay, So we call the relative efficiency the amount of energy we extract in one of these output lasing photons compared to the energy that's in one of these input pump photons. We call that the quantum efficiency. And it's it's just a unitless number between 0 and 1. And if this diagram were drawn to scale, we take a ruler and measure this distance compared to this distance and find a quantum efficiency here at something like 70%, 0.7. And the system efficiency is a little higher. And we call that 0.8%. Or, I'm sorry, 0.8 or 80%. And that's usually denoted by the Greek letter eta. Okay, so that's kind of what goes on in the material that makes up the laser. Um, That's only a part of a laser system. It's the main part of what we call a laser amplifier. So, in fact, a laser amplifier is functionally this. You send in a low-intensity beam, you get out a higher-intensity beam at the same frequency. And really, it's just what I drew before. It's some material in which you can generate a population inversion, it's pumped. In this diagram, it's being pumped by light from laser diodes. You can also pump it with flash lamps, basically a flash bulb. Um, flash bulbs, flash lamps are white light sources. Laser diodes are narrow line width sources. So if you have a flash lamp you have a range of frequencies you're pumping it with, and that's why you might excite more than just one upper state. You might go from the ground state to a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, a whole range of energy levels that all decay into your upper lasing state. Um, You might pump it with another laser, as is shown here, a laser diode or another non-diode laser. You might pump it with chemical energy. You might pump it with Current. That's how a laser diode is pumped. Current flowing through. That's how a helium-neon laser you may have used in a lab class you've seen demonstrated. It's uh, energy coming from electrical current. Lots of different ways to add the energy. It doesn't have to be absorption of a photon. That's just what I drew in the in the diagrams. But anything that pumps up to an upper level uh, can potentially be a laser. Okay, so that's a laser amplifier. Um, really, these are useful when you already have a narrow, collimated beam of that you can send through. What we tend to think of as lasers are actually laser oscillators. That's what's inside here. And it's going to generate your beam. It's just a laser amplifier, just like we drew, but it has mirrors around it, around it on either side. Um, whether those be physical mirrors, or whether they're, say, total internal reflection off of, say, this face, or whether they're coatings put on the face of some crystal or some glass tube that holds the gain medium, it doesn't really matter. The point is, we have an optical cavity. And the idea here is that when you pump your lasing medium, you generate a population inversion. You have this upper state it has a long lifetime. It has a long lifetime, but eventually that population will decay to the lower state. And one way that it will decay is by giving off photons. So we'll give off those photons, we'll go in every direction. And there omnidirectional there's no preferred orientation so you get photons coming at the laser wavelength some of those will be on axis of this cavity and the ones that are on axis will reflect off of the mirror and come back and when they come back they get amplified when they pass through again reflect come back they get amplified again so you get Essentially, all that upper state population difference that it built up gets, uh, all that energy gets dumped into this resonant cavity mode. So that Initial large population difference will decrease as you saturate the system. And all that energy goes into this, this mode until the energy in this mode uh, is much larger than any fluorescence that's leaking out. And then because these mirrors aren't 100% reflective, you get a small amount of that light leaking out. So these mirrors, depending on the laser, are anywhere from, say, 30 to 99% reflective. So consider a 99% reflectivity mirror. If you have one watt of output power from your laser, that means there's 100 watts of power circulating inside the cavity. And that's a laser. That's what we typically think of as a laser, a laser oscillator. So the output of this laser oscillator, the frequency and the spatial mode, or the, the properties of the beam, are governed by Uh, primarily by this cavity. So we'll need to understand a little bit about optical cavities in order to understand how the frequency of the laser um, is determined and how it can be controlled. So I like to use this so-called self-consistent model for analysis of an optical cavity. We look at three different fields that are relevant to our laser, require that they be self-consistent, and then solve for the magnitude of those fields. So the fields we're interested in are the output of the laser, and we'll call that field, which is an electric field that we're going to solve for, the magnitude of the The amplitude of the electromagnetic wave that comes out measured in the electric field we'll call E-trans, E-transmitted. It's a transmitted electric field transmitted through this mirror. So the mirror that the light transmits through we call the output coupler. It couples light out of the laser. We'll assume that this mirror here is unit reflectivity. So no light couples out here. So there's a transmitted field. There's a circulating field just inside the cavity which is going to be much larger than the transmitted field. right? Because it's that circulating field that leaks out. If, for instance, we have 1% leaking out, the circulating field will be 100 times bigger than the transmitted field. Okay. When I say 1%, if, if 1% of the field leaks out. Um, we also have some source. In our case, the source that we're adding to the cavity is the light coming from the lasing material. So rather than the photons that are just circulating around, if we think of the new photons being added on every round trip, we'll call that the source field. And we know a few things, a few relationships between these fields. Uh, We know for instance the circulating field times the transmissivity of this mirror should give us the output field, the transmitted field, just by definition of what mirror transmissivity is. Uh, We know that the circulating field here is made up of two parts. It's made up of the circulating field one round trip earlier that's circulated around. And in the process of circulating around, some of that field gets lost. Some of it leaks out through this mirror. And we also know that it acquires a phase shift because it traveled some distance. So if the round trip phase shift is phi, then it acquires half of that phase shift going this way, half of that phase shift going back so the circulating field one round trip earlier gets a phase shift has its amplitude reduced a little bit and it adds up with the new field being added and that has to reproduce the original circulating field in order for this system to be in the steady state okay? so we're going to assume it's a steady state which means the circulating field now is the same as it was one round trip earlier and if we do that we can solve for what all these fields are in terms of how much power we're adding or how much source field we're adding Okay, so our equation for the circulating field is that the circulating field equals the source field plus the circulating field one round trip earlier, but that in the steady state is the same as it is now, so I'm going to use the same Ecirc for that, with a phase shift and a reduction in the amplitude due to the reflectivity of this mirror being less than 1. And so this field, I can solve for, or at least I can solve for how big the circulating field is relative to the source field that I'm adding. So here is that solution. Circulating field is proportional to the source field. And it has this factor in the denominator, 1 minus r times e to the something. Okay, so let's see, if r is equal to 0, have a mirror here. Then what that's saying is whatever source field I put in, that is my circulating field. And I can also now solve for the transmitted field. The transmitted field is just whatever my circulating field is. That's uh, this term. Right, I'm just copying it from over here. Times the transmission coefficient of this mirror, the t. Okay, And I'm going to use a... Um, a reference frame, where whenever I have transmission, I treat that as a complex number, uh, as an imaginary number. So if t is the magnitude of the transmission coefficient, I'm going to call it it. And by doing that, if I always treat the transmission as imaginary, that's equivalent to a 90-degree phase shift of a phasor. And so if transmission through the mirror is a 90-degree phase shift, then I can consider reflection Um, as having zero phase shift. If I don't do that, then I need to consider reflection on one side has no phase shift, and from the other side is 180 degree phase shift. None of this is really anything that I want to prove or derive for you. Just kind of uh, explaining why every time we have a transmission coefficient, we're going to write I times T. OK, so we can look at the circulating field, which is directly proportional to the transmitting field. So the transmitting field is what come up, comes out. And now we can see if r equals 0, again, we take away the mirror. If r equals 0 and t equals 1, so the mirror is not there. No reflection, 100% transmission. Transmitted field is just equal to the source field, plus a 90 degree shift. OK, nothing interesting. As the reflectivity increases, let's say we have a reflectivity very close to 1, then what we have in the denominator is 1 minus a number whose magnitude is very close to 1. And for the case where this argument is some integer multiple of 2 pi, then the exponential term is unity. 1 minus a number close to 1 is very small. That in the denominator gives you a very large number. But for any other value of this argument where this term is not near 1, then the denominator is relatively large and we don't get large buildup of the transmission. So that might be clearer if I draw a phasor diagram. I've got my real in my imaginary axes. And let me look at the denominator. 1 minus r times some phase. Okay. Here's 1. Let's take the value of r to be slightly less than 1. So let me draw that point. This point is r. And because of this Phase shift. This term here can be entirely real, can be entirely imaginary, or can be any complex number that has a magnitude of r. Somewhere on that circle is the denominator, or, or is the second term the denominator. So this is one minus r times e to the i. So this circle is r times e to the i to omega l over c. Depending on the values of omega and l, you'll have different points in the circle. The denominator has a length determined by the distance from one to a point in the circle. As the frequency changes of the light, or as the length of the cavity changes, the point on the circle that represents the second term will rotate around, and the length of this line will be <laughs> unity, which is kind of what I've drawn, something on the order of unity, to being very, very small. When it's very, very small, the denominator is small, the number is large, and our output is large. We call that resonance. Kay? And that occurs with the argument of this term, is an integer multiple of 2 pi, and that works out to this length being some integer number of half wavelengths, the standard resonance condition for an optical cavity. And so the transmitted field, if we plot it, I plotted intensity, which is proportional to field squared, but has the same same, uh, elements of the function that I'm interested in, it will have these large peaks when the cavity is resonant and at frequencies or cavity lengths where it's not resonant it will be very small. So essentially the, if our laser can provide source field at any frequency I mean the lasing material, the output of the laser oscillator can only be at a discrete number of frequencies those which, which, which for which the cavity is resonant and all these peaks longitudinal modes of the laser cavity okay each one corresponds to a different number of uh, wavelengths fitting within this cavity And on this plot I've plotted the intensity versus frequency so as you change the frequency, So if you consider different frequencies, you have different wavelengths. And some wavelengths will be resonant in this cavity, some will not. Okay, So that's changing this omega. We could plot a similar spectrum of intensity versus cavity length. And certainly, as we change the cavity length by a small bit, we would shift this entire curve one way or the other because it's a product of omega and L. So a small change in L requires a small change in omega to keep this product constant. Okay, so we call this the cavity spectrum. Um, The cavity itself acts like a filter. We have some input light that might be relatively broadband, so broadband compared to the width of these the structure here. But what comes out is only discrete frequencies. So it's a filter, we call this a comb filter perhaps for obvious reasons. And we call this the spectrum of the cavity or the spectrum of the filter. So a few parameters that we use to describe this. We have the separation of the teeth on this comb. That's called the free spectral range. And if this spectrum is measured in terms of the frequency, then that free spectral range is how much the frequency needs to change such that one more or one less wavelength fit in one round trip of the cavity. And that you can work that out without too much effort. Uh, That works out to be C over 2L is the length of the cavity. That means 2L is the round-trip length. If your cavity is not linear, but is some sort of triangular shape or some, some shape that's uh, not a folded cavity, then we'd replace this 2L with the total perimeter. We can generalize that a bit. That tells us the frequency separation. The width of these resonances, we call the line width of the cavity, We have a line width of an atomic transition. This is the line width of the cavity. We denote it delta f. And in order to find the line width of the cavity, it's useful to consider this parameter called the finesse. So the finesse, by definition, is how much bigger the free spectral range is compared to the line width. So if we were to plot, this cavity spectrum for a mirror with a reflectivity say of 0.3, we might see a spectrum that looks something like this. I'll call this little That is to say if our If our reflectivity is not near unity, then the difference in the size of this denominator for the output field doesn't change that much between resonance and off resonance. So we don't get strong, strongly peaked structure in the cavity spectrum. As we increase the reflectivity, size of the peaks increase. So this might be 0.7. As we get closer and closer to 1, the resonances become sharper and sharper. If we think of this as a filter, one of the things you might want to do is pick out one narrow region of one particular frequency. So let's say your laser material can oscillate has a large atomic bandwidth, a large uh, linewidth, Lorentzian linewidth. If that's large, you want to pick out a very narrow frequency. Um, the ability to resolve a frequency. Like sort of the size of your filter is given by this line width. But the number of discrete frequencies you can separate depends on how many of those line widths you can fit within one free spectral range. Okay, because once you tune your filter through one free spectral range, frequencies which were resonant before you've tuned off resonance, will become resonant again in a different peak of the spectrum. So the finesse can be thought of as how many different frequencies you can resolve. Typical finesse would be something like a hundred for a cavity in air with ninety-nine like percent reflectivity mirrors. You could resolve something like a hundred different frequencies. Or you could break your frequency, your you could use this as a filter to separate the light out into one of 100 different frequency uh, components. And so if finesse is the ratio of free spectral range to the line width, the line width is just the free spectral range over the finesse. And the finesse is uh, determined entirely by the reflectivity of the mirrors. Okay, so as we saw here, higher reflectivity leads to higher finesse. And here's the expression for that. You calculate that from the mirror reflectivities. The free-spectral range depends on their geometry, how far apart they are. And that determines, then, the lineman. So if we wanted to take a laser, have it at a particular frequency, and then sweep that frequency through the sumatomic transition and plot out that Lorentzian line shape that you calculated in homework 2, What would we need the line width of the laser to be? Could we use any line, I mean, would any line width allow us to do that? Melissa? What constraint would we have? Well, would you want a big line width or a small line width? Small line width. So you need this, uh, the laser frequency to be uh, narrower or the frequency range the line width of the laser to be narrower than the spectrum you're trying to trace out with it. So let's say we have some that has a line width of froth compared to the line width of a cavity and that might be the material we're trying to measure, or it might be the material that's causing the lasing inside of our optical cavity. So that's the case. Um, that's saying the laser, in principle, could operate at any frequency between, say, here and here, say within one full width half max of that line width. Uh, but the cavity will only allow discrete frequencies. And so the output of the laser needs to be somewhere that's within this peak of the... In this case, gain profile, not absorption, gain profile. But it also needs to simultaneously fit under one of these uh, peaks of the cavity. And so, what we'd likely see is so that's a spectrum of the laser, the intensity as a function of frequency. You can see there's multiple frequencies at which this is outputting. We call that a multi-mode laser. Uh, more specifically, that's a multi-longitudinal mode laser. There are also multiple transverse modes that you can consider. We're just going to neglect those in this class. OK, so um, if you don't do anything special to your laser, uh, this is likely what what you'll get. Uh, a Heaney laser that you buy for 200 bucks that you um, might use in a introductory optics class has an output spectrum that looks like this tend to talk about them as being single frequencies. These are explicitly not single frequencies. They have multiple frequencies, and they suck for doing spectroscopy. Okay. If you send this laser into some material and you see it's absorbed, you don't know which frequency you got to absorb. You just measure the output. Okay, so that's generally not what we want, spectroscopy. There's a lot of other, other applications that require single frequency. Uh, light, and so very often what we'll want to do is both uh, narrow the frequency band down such that we have only a single frequency coming out, and also we'll want to be able to tune what frequency that's at. So if it's possible to have any frequency under this this gain profile, we'd like to be able to shift the cavity frequency around such that we can uh, tune the output laser frequency. Okay, so one way you can do that is you can change the length of the cavity. I already mentioned that changing the length of the cavity would cause these peaks to move. So you increase the length, the peaks would move out this way. You shorten the length, the peaks would move this way. Nice, um, But if you have a whole bunch of frequencies all at once, you're shifting all the frequencies, but that doesn't really help you. You want just a single frequency. So something else you may do is put some sort of additional filter in place that has a much narrower line width than the cavity, okay, but has a free spectral range that's larger than the atomic response, meaning this, uh, this red frequency filter that I've added to the system uh, doesn't repeat at any frequency that I would have in my output spectrum of my multi-mode laser. And if you have that additional filter, now the requirement for the laser frequency at the output is that it has to be within the gain line width of the lasing material. It also needs to sit under one of these transmission peaks of the cavity. And it needs to sit under the transmission peak of this additional filter that you've put in. Okay, so the combination of those three constraints can limit you to a single output frequency. And then you can tune, say, this, this red filter response. If you tune that by moving it back and forth somehow, and I haven't talked yet about what we might use as that filter, but if you can tune that frequency, what will happen is the frequency of the output laser, of the laser will jump. It will jump from being, say, right here, to this, to this, to this, to this longitudinal mode as this frequency moves. So we we call that um, non-continuously tunable. We call that a mode hop, when the output laser frequency suddenly changes to the next longitudinal mode. So that allows you to do sort of coarse frequency tuning, but not to smoothly vary the frequency to do something like trace out an absorption spectrum. Okay, so what can you use to produce this uh, additional um, this additional filter? Uh, you can have something usually inside the cavity that is wavelength selected. so something like a prism or a grating that can separate wavelengths. So a prism will disperse light. You can arrange it so that only light dispersed at one particular angle by the prism is then retroreflected back into the cavity. Or you can use another cavity, like so you've got your main laser cavity which produces the green filter, and another one which produces the red filter line. What would be so if this Well, just looking at the pictures, what's the primary difference between the red filter and the green filter spectrum? So our our options are line width, free spectral range, or finesse. So free spectral range is how often this filter repeats. And the main difference that I've at least tried to demonstrate is that this red one does not repeat at all within the uh, relevant region of the spectrum, whereas the green one repeats very frequently. Okay, So does the red one have a larger or smaller free-spectral range? Free-spectral range is how often it repeats in frequency. It's larger. So I haven't drawn it repeating, but if it's from a cavity, presumably at some point, maybe not on this graph, maybe over here it will repeat. So the frequency at which it repeats is greater. So is the cavity length greater or smaller? Smaller. Smaller. Okay. So this is this red, if this red frequency spectrum is produced by an optical cavity, it will have a shorter cavity length than the laser. And in fact, it may be on the order of millimeters or less, microns even. So you can see why you can't just take your original laser cavity and make it have that free spectral range. You wouldn't have inside the cavity to put Necessarily have to have a long laser cavity, which means a narrow, a small free spectral range means lots of modes. And then you can put an additional, very short cavity within your laser. It acts as an additional filter. That's called an etalon. An etalon is just a very short cavity, microns to millimeters, and it's usually just a single piece of glass with reflection on either side. So it's not, a, it's not like two mirrors separated by some space. It's just reflection off the of either side of a thin piece of glass. So when we put the laser gain material and the optical cavity together, we get our laser source, our laser oscillator. Um, there's lots of different lasers you can buy that go anywhere from 2 bucks up to you know, $2 million bucks. So what makes them different? Why is a laser not a laser? What are some of the parameters that you might have to consider when choosing a laser for an experiment? You can read. You can answer that question. Okay, so center wavelength is one. And if you have a particular region of the frequency of the spectrum that you're interested in uh, considering, so you have certain energy levels that you want to address in an atom, that means a certain frequency. You need your laser to have a wavelength that can at least be tuned to within that frequency range. Um, so every laser is a different wavelength or set of wavelengths it can operate at. Some are tunable, some are not. and We'll look at a moment at what makes a laser easily tuned. Uh, We saw by changing the cavity length, you can shift the output frequency, but you'll get these mode hops. Um, How far you can shift it depends on that atomic gain uh, line width. So what causes you to have a large atomic line width? Talk about that in a minute. Uh, How much intensity you can get out? That's, we already sort of touched on that when we talked about three-level versus four-level systems and how there are saturation effects and uh, quantum efficiency issues that sort of limit how much power you can get out. And then there's temporal characteristics. Some lasers operate as continuous sources. Some are necessarily pulse. And for certain applications, you need one or the other. If you're trying to do something that's time-resolved, trying to measure the concentration of a particular element during a chemical reaction and see how the reaction evolves. Having a pulse laser can be a very good thing. It's like taking snapshots. Every spectrum that you measure is a different snapshot of your system. Uh, for other systems, you want it continually on to, to uh, continuously monitor your system. OK, so the center wavelength is determined by the energy level difference of the atomic material. Energy level diagram. Say we've got uh, transition between two states. This is what we call the upper and lower state of the lasing transition. We might pump from the ground state down here. Might pump up to this excited state. Um, So we have an upper energy level and a lower energy level. The energy now if the e is f is c over lambda, so the center wavelength is just given by hc over the energy level of my upper and lower state. If those states are really uh, well-defined energy levels, then this energy level difference is well-defined, and therefore this wavelength is well-defined. And we cannot tune the system over a large range of wavelengths. But this lower energy level is more like a band of energy levels. Then you can have a transition to the top of that, transition to the bottom of that, or anywhere in between. There's a range of energies, a range of wavelengths that you can have at the output. Why might you have a band of energies instead of just a, a single line there? Uh, so the uncertainty principle, so uh, having quite a spread in energy, large spread in energy, small spread in time. Uh, anyone think of a physical mechanism that could, you could apply that would produce that? Okay, so we've seen that like an external... Magnetic field can shift the energy levels or split the energy levels. So if you had, okay, so let's say some noisy magnetic field, you could get a range of energy levels here. Okay. Um, collisions can do the same thing in a, in a solid. Uh, interaction of phonons with a crystal lattice can cause energy level to be shifted. And in a thermal environment where you have thermal energy and phonon, you can get a single energy level spread into a range. That's in a crystal. It's only in solids. Um, In liquids and gases, if you have very complex organic molecules with hundreds or thousands of of bonds, you have so many different degrees of freedom, you essentially have uh, a continuum of energy levels over a region of the spectrum. Due to all the different uh, energy states, And so those are the two most common mechanisms used to produce tunable lasers. Uh, They they both give rise to a spread in the lower energy level. If you have a spread in the upper energy level, then the system will very quickly decay to the bottom. And essentially the upper state will be populated at the, the bottom of the upper state. So if you have population sitting up here at the top of this energy level band, you can expect that it will very quickly fall to the bottom collisions or um, transfer of energy to other degrees of freedom. It will decay to that bottom and then stay there until it can decay. Okay, so that determines sort of the range of wavelengths that you uh, can expect to tune over. The way you do that tuning can either be with the laser cavity. I already mentioned tuning the laser cavity can change the laser wavelength. If you start off with a single mode cavity and as you tune it you can shift that center wavelength. This isn't so useful in a multi-mode laser. I mentioned an etalon, um, a narrow cavity or a narrow line-width cavity inside of your main cavity and as you, for example, heat the etalon or tilt it, you change its resonant frequency. You essentially tune the etalon, tune the laser. Um, I mentioned a prism and a diffraction grating. Those are actually fairly common ways that this is done. Consider some, uh, start with a laser amplifier. So this is your gain material, and we're going to build a cavity around that. So I started by drawing two mirrors like that and said that light that was on the optical axis of that cavity would amplify and become the laser mode. But now let's put a prism in this. Um, Different wavelengths will refract at different angles. And now put in your output coupler right there. This mirror will retroreflect the light the rays that I drew in blue to go back and oscillate in this laser cavity. The rays I've drawn in red will not retroreflect. They're off axis. So Essentially, you limit the frequencies that can oscillate in the cavity by the dispersion of the prism. As you Tilt the angle of the prism, you change the wavelength that can resonate in the cavity. Okay. Um, Let's see. So, going through a few of these. The laser cavity can be tuned by moving the laser mirrors. One way to do that is to use a piezo actuator. It's a little, usually, lead-zirconium titanate crystal you apply a voltage to it, it changes its length. These are the things that doorbells are made out of. the buzzing in a doorbell. Um, so as you change the length, you change the frequency of this resonance. Um, because you're moving a mirror, the mirror has mass. There's limited frequency at which it inertia. So that's usually useful. Uh, you can move the mirror very far over many wavelengths. But you can not tune it very fast. Maybe up to a kilohertz or so. So you can't move, change the frequency quickly. Um, you can change the crystal of the laser material. That changes the, both the physical path length because it heats up the crystal, and the crystal or gas, and it changes the uh, physical path length, to refraction, to the, temperature the refraction through the temperature-dependent index of refraction, tuning as well. That's even slower because it's on thermal time scales, so something on the order of 10 seconds the laser frequency. But you can tune it by a much larger range. An etalon, as I mentioned, is a short cavity that you put inside the crystal. And you can change the path length of that etalon by tilting it or by heating it. And as that changes the path length, it moves the resonant frequency around. And that affects the frequency of the output. Other mechanisms, I'm not going to say anything about a tuning wedge. Um, there's the prism. As I showed, this is a common method that's used. Well, one of the disadvantages of a prism um, is because the light goes through the material, you are subject to optical damage. And that's relevant in a laser. Lasers often have high power, small beam sizes, so large intensities. And because this is inside the laser cavity, they said that the power inside the cavity is necessarily much larger than on the output. You might have something like for a 99% reflectivity output coupler, 100 times more power on the inside than on the outside. That means for modest powers of the output, you're likely to damage any transmissive optics in the input and the inside. That's the disadvantage of a prism. Um, so an alternative is to use diffraction gratings. A diffraction grating, like a prism, takes light and, depending on the wavelength, separates it at different angles. So here's the expression that relates the wavelength to the, guess, here is the diffracted angle. and you can solve for how much that angle changes as the wavelength changes. Taking the derivative, you get an expression for how much angular dispersion there is. And if you look at this expression, you'll you'll notice if you want to be able to tune this uh, by adjusting the angle of the grating, having a larger amount of dispersion means you can tune it more. And you get the most dispersion at grazing incidence, where theta is about 90 degrees, cosine of theta goes towards zero, and this dispersion is very large, but as you get towards 90 degrees, you tend to get low efficiency for the grating. So there's a trade-off. A trade-off there that causes you not to work at that uh, that region. But uh, reflection grating doesn't have uh, the same issues as a prism. You don't have light going through an optical material. So they can handle much higher power. So something like 80%. The fraction efficiency is considered very good, whereas for a prism, you might have 99% transmission. So a factor of difference in loss. Um, let's see. Let me just take a look. I've got... Let me see if I can get through the next two slides before we stop. Um, Another property that you may be interested in is how much peak intensity you can get out. So for various systems, you need high power. Other systems, you need high intensity. They're related. One way to get high power is to take all your energy and concentrate it into short pulses. So for the same amount of total energy per second, same power, you can get much greater peak power by doing that. Um, One of the most common ways to get high power out of a laser is to use it in Q-switched mode. So a Q-switch. Q stands for quality. And it means the quality of the laser cavity is switched. Conceptually, what that is, is you have your laser cavity, you have your lasing material... Normally, this would operate in sort of steady-state mode. That's what we analyzed. Now you put in a shutter to block the cavity. If you block the cavity, what do you do if you pump this lasing material? What will happen to the population inversion? It will increase. There's essentially no circulating field to pull the energy out of the upper state. Um, And so you just continue to pump this higher and higher, that's uh, to higher and higher uh, inversion. When you, so let me draw that, if the steady state might look something like this, what we can do is pump it up so that we have more inversion than we do in the steady state. When we open up this switch, Get a very this very large inversion produces very large gain, and as we get gain, we get population depleting from the upper state up to the lower state until the gain reduces, and once the gain, the round trip gain, the round trip losses Mm -hmm. in the system, main round trip losses usually then there's no more change in the population. So you get a, a spike in the power when you open up this switch. And of course, when you close the switch, you completely block the output of the laser. And so that spike in power is the pulse of the laser. And one way you can do this is physically having a switch that you open and close. But um, another way you can do it is by putting in a saturable absorber. Remember we started talking about electromagnetically induced transparency in a system? and That's a saturable absorber. If you have a saturable absorber, someone remind me what its properties were? It becomes transparent once you reach some threshold incident power. So what's going to happen is uh, when you have this cavities blocked, you don't have lasing, this is opaque. If somehow, say due to random fluctuations, in the number of spontaneously emitted photons, you get a peak in the power illuminating this that reduces the loss here, the absorption, and allows then some of that light to circulate and get amplified, increasing that power. And essentially, you have one one energetically favorable situation in which you have a single spike of energy circulating in this cavity. And So when the spike is not present, this is opaque. When the spike is present, this becomes transparent. The leading edge of this spike saturates this absorber, the trailing edge passes through, and then this gets amplified by the large population difference that's built up here during the rest of the time when there's no energy present and you're not extracting power out of the laser. So you can typically get uh, energy levels of a joule per pulse. A joule is about the energy to match. And you can get pulses, repetition rate of about a kilohertz, and the pulse lengths are typically nanoseconds in range. So kilo, a joule at a kilohertz is something like a kilojoule every second. Kilowatt power lasers generally operate this way. Laser machining, things like that. Okay, I think that's uh, where we'll wind up today. We'll pick up here next time and talk more about uh, specific lasers. This is just general talk about different materials, different uh, lasers that you could actually look up in a catalog and buy for your experiment.